Jared talks about why training is so important when reacting to a gun battle. That was really the way to stop this fight, right? Right. And that's the deal is if you think you're going to think about this stuff in the moment, you're fooling yourself. All this stuff is pre-decision, predetermined decisions made through training. Like you go to train, like that's where you get your groundwork. Almost my body was just responding and doing things that it's trained. Like I think on, when I re- think back on it, I remember grabbing him and starting to fall. And like as my muzzles come into his head, it's like kind of when I remember like, oh man, I decided to headshot him. You know what I mean? Like, cause it was just like, the, it was, that's where I give the Jacksonville Sheriff's Office and the SWAT team so much credit is they had my training, you know, once the once the decision is made, that's the hard part, right? Is making the decision of when you can shoot, who you can shoot, should you shoot. But once the shooting goes and the violence goes, it becomes automatic. Welcome to Game of Crimes. Staying far enough back where you could deploy the taser and not have to worry about, like you say, going hands-on. Yeah, and not shooting from like 30 – Yeah, not like nothing crazy. It was like a perfect taser deployment <laughs> distance, really. And um, I put that laser sight on his back, went to tase him, and nothing happened. No pop, no uh, discharge of the darts, nothing. Had you ever had that happen before on your taser? Never. Later on, did you, did, were you able – was anybody able to determine what, what, what malfunctioned on the taser? They don't know. I mean, it's an Xbox controller. Like now they're a good plan C, <laughs> you know, and it was just, I've seen it work so many times before at that time. And I've been tased and all like, you know, it sucks. Like, you know what I mean? But it works. It does what it's supposed to do. And that was the first time I ever seen it fail like that. I've seen it fail where like I people have missed you know what I mean? Like you don't get too too or the clothing's too thick. Yeah, like too pro. But I've never seen it not discharge and it not work. Like I've never seen it as a mechanical um, failure before. So you're you're this close and it doesn't it doesn't fire. What do you do? So I look down like I'm holding that what seems like an eternity, and now I'm like closing the distance on them. So I look down and like they have an LED readout on the back of the taser to like to count down the five seconds that it that it deploys and um i just see that counting down it's not doing anything so i'm like what the hell so i had to safe it then holster it and then i went hands-on with the suspect let's talk about that for a second too because you said safe it and then holster it what are the considerations of why you just don't drop that thing or throw it and go you know directly to hands-on i mean because it does take time to safe it and holster it obviously something you practiced before but a lot of people might think hey why don't you just throw it you know and then go after the guy I mean, throw it down or just drop it. You know, I know, I know, I, I get what you're saying. But at that point, this isn't for cops. This is for. There's a lot of people out there who go, you know, who've never been in law enforcement, and they're thinking, you know, why would why wouldn't you just drop it and just go after? I mean, him? at that time, he's still a guy just running. It's not. He, it, I wasn't in danger. If if I had a taser in my hand and he drew the pistol that he shot me with, I would drop it and go like that's. But at that point, he's just running. I have time, kind of to to yeah to holster it and but why i don't drop it anyways well they're expensive i don't want to get (laughs) payroll deducted on that bad boy but you know um it puts another weapon into a fight or on a ground that probably might not want to be there you know what i mean so 
at least if it's on my body, I know where it's at. Yeah. And that's kind of what I was getting at too, because it may not have worked for you, but if somebody picked it up, just the fact that it didn't work for you means it's probably going to work for the suspect when they pick it yeah, up. Yeah, no doubt about that. You know, with the, their luck runs a little <laughs> than ours. different than yours. So you safe it and you go after him. What 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 point do you get to where you're hands on with him? So probably another little bit, uh, and it happened like in the northeast or like a, a a corner of a dried retention pond. It's about a 25 yard circumference retention pond, and like a four maybe four yards or four, four to five feet deep, kind of like it's just a, like a rain runoff catch pretty much is what it is, but it was dry at the time. Where is, so you've pretty much outdistanced Chris, where is he at this point? You know, later on, as you find out, where is he at this point when you're, when you're there at that point of hands-on? Maybe 40 yards behind me, kind of like rounding that corner where he started running again, probably is where he was at. But he can't see you. No, he can't see me because it happened at like a, um, like a self-storage facility, like an indoor self. And they also rented U-Haul trucks. So like in their parking lot, they had like the big U-Hauls kind of, and we ran in between some U-Hauls. So, so his, his vision's blocked. He doesn't exactly know where you're at other than the general area. And right. now you're one-on-one with this kid now. Yeah. So he was wearing like a black hooded zip up sweatshirt. And my plan was to grab his sweatshirt and pull him to the ground, pull him back. And we would go to the ground because at the time, you know, with my football career and tackling and things like that, and then at the time I was training a lot of like uh, mixed martial arts and Brazilian jiu-jitsu, so I was I I am still, but I'm I was comfortable on the ground, so I was trying to get to the ground. Um, so and it, that's kind of where it. I probably shouldn't have took him to the ground. It would have behooved me to like push him, or and like in my mind. Because of my training, I knew I wasn't the best boxer in the world, but I was good on the ground. So, but in police work, that's probably not the best where I need to be. Like, I don't want to be on the ground with somebody rolling around where I could create a little bit of distance and use my tools and things like that. So, like, that was one mistake, not a mistake, but a learning lesson. It was just a tactical decision. I mean, you made a, you might make a different decision today, but at that time, I mean, you've already run 300 yards to get to the store. You've run another 75 yards to get to where he is. And then what, another 40 yards from there? No, it was a quarter mile. It was, you know, we ran. Okay. So I've ran right roughly just under a half mile probably to get to him. In full gear. Yeah. You know, and what I'm saying is at that point, I mean, you've got other considerations too, because You've got to worry about your strength, his strength. You know, what do you got still left in the tank? And that was the thing is I don't think that it was a, it was a, I already made that decision when I train and things like that. That was like, that was a program decision. Cause I always went to the ground. Like that's, I, I was comfortable there. So, but, and I wasn't ever trained not to, it was just kind of one of those things that, you know, looking back, pushing him forward probably would have helped me from maybe possibly not getting shot. You know what I mean? Or maybe giving me the opportunity to see the pistol. I don't know. But I mean, I don't know. It's not like, I mean, we can't go back. I mean, it's, you can look back at it later, said it would have done something different. But the point is you were at a point to where, like you said, low level crime, no no violence had been displayed at that point. You know, you tried your taser and it didn't work. So yeah. You're going to what you're going to what has normally worked for you in hundreds of other situations. Yeah, and it's it's listen, 
if th that is really my only nitpick of the situation of I should have pushed him rather than pull him, I did pretty good. <laughs> like, you did well. You, know, like, <laughs> you did well. <laughs> well, hindsight's always twenty twenty. So yeah, I mean, and that's and that's and that's the, really a good learning point for it. But that it wasn't anything crazy. Like neither way is wrong. I just looking back, that would have been better that day. But what happened? So what happened that day? So you get up there, you grab the hoodie. So I grab his. As soon as I put my hand on his hood, he throws his. He starts spinning towards me, and like throws his right arm high and breaks my grip off his hood. Which, even that movement of knowing to like throw your arm up high to like get over top of the grip, that's kind of a trained thing. Like that's not a, like most people just it's kind not of not a normal. Most people just try to rip banger. with like yeah. yeah, like rip with their. So he, I don't know if he had, and I don't I'm not saying, but like looking back, like that move in itself was a. It's like windmilling your arm. Yeah, that they do like getting over a grip, grip and breaking yeah. it rather than just trying to like turn your shoulders and rip the hood out of my hand, which wouldn't have worked. You know what I mean? <laughs> Yeah, because so, you had too much strength in your hand, but the ability to use leverage and use an entire arm as leverage kind of changes the uh, changes the leverage point for yes, him. Yeah, so he broke my grip, and then let when me, he let came, me ask you before you go any further, Chris, uh, Jared, that did you have enough time in your mind to mentally think that, or no. is this through self evaluations afterwards? That's just evaluations afterwards. But what it the next part I immediately recognized though. So he. When he threw it and he came to rest, he had that one foot dropped. His body was blade and his hands were like up on it, like protecting his chin and his chin was lowered. That's a fighting stance. There, like, you know, I've arrested hundreds. You're thinking like a, like a traditional almost boxing stance where you've got that, you know. Yeah. I mean, it was a, it was a fighting stance. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Um, and after, you know, hundreds of arrests, probably thousands of arrests, and hundreds of people running and or a hundred people running. It wasn't a normal behavior for someone who was trying to get away. When people try to get away, it's a little like they start pushing and doing like slapping at hands, trying to like break your grip and they still want to get away. This was a, he turned and stood his ground and bla and I immediately recognized it as a fight. And like, that's what I tell a lot of people. That's the key to a lot of this stuff is early recognition of that. You're in a fight. Because you don't have to get punched to be in a fight. If you can read their body language and you see what's happening, you know, the bell is rung. People are doing the dance. This no one's thrown a punch yet. So That's street smarts. Yeah. And in my mind, you're not going to get the first punch. <laughs> you know, I'm going to take your I'm going to take your chances. So I, I I threw a punch, threw an elbow, and closed the gap and grabbed him and pulled him in close, like still giving him knee strikes to the leg, trying to get him to the ground still. You get you get that close now. Now you're con now you have contact. You're body to body, right? Trying to wrestle this kid. Are you and are you still upright, or have you taken him to the ground? No, at no, that we're point? we're still both standing up, like so. You know, like a clinch move almost. Like uh, so, my right hand behind his like head, clinching him in tight. Um, that's are are you chest to chest? Yeah, but our bodies are kind of like think of like an MMA fight when they lock up. So like our hips are away from each other, and we're kind of based out still. But you're kind of, but you're facing each other though at that point, right? Oh yeah. And then so seconds into that, I feel like a big hit to my face, and I start kind of falling to my left and like rolling down that the embankment of that retention pond. And in my head, it felt like I got punched. Like I, I felt like he caught me with something, you know, through training, through contact sports. Like I, I was like, all right, he got you. You know, get up, get up, get up. Like let's let's. 
he caught you with a good one, you know, but we're still in this. Let's go. Let's go. But before I came to rest, as I fell down, I could feel like I didn't feel, I felt with my tongue that my jaw is now collapsed on top of itself and my bottom teeth are laying like horizontal in my mouth. So I'm like, man, something else is going on here. And I kind of look up at him and he's standing over top of me shooting me. So like that was the first time I realized that I've been shot and he is continuing to shoot me. When you felt that hit you, did you feel any pain? Was it, you know, what, what was the sensation when you got hit like that? Was it like getting your bell rung and the lights go out for a little bit? You know, when you get like get hit with a hard punch? Yeah, but my lights didn't go out. It's just kind of almost like just kind of dazed you. I mean, I don't know, like anybody's ever been punched in the face. It doesn't hurt when you get, when you get that punched, it hurts later and sore and cut, but it's just kind of like, I don't, th there wasn't a pain recognition. It was more of a, I got my bell rung recognition. So how far, how much higher is he than you now? When you say you rolled down this embankment, how much of a distance are we talking about maybe? Uh, I mean, he's five, six feet above me, but still I rolled down. So he's probably maybe six feet back and I'm five feet down kind of deal. What happens next? You said he continues to shoot at you. He's got the first shot, which hits you where? Dead center of my jaw. It hit me like, you know, centered up right underneath my, like right in the center of my chin, uh, entered there, cracked my jaw in half and then exited out my neck. Was it more of a downward trajectory or did the impact of the bullet when it struck your jaw change the trajectory of the bullet? I'm going to say a little bit of both. I mean, because I, I don't know. Because, you know, bullets do funny things when they hit meat. So, you know what I mean? I don't know what it was, you know, what the trajectory. And that's why I always laugh at, like, those CSIs, like we were talking about, when they stick, like, a dowel rod through something. And they're like, oh, this is the angle of it. And I'm like, nah, player, that's not how that works. Yeah. <laughs> bullets yeah, do funny things. Works that way on TV, but not in yeah. real life. Yeah. yeah. They tumble. They do all sorts yeah, of stuff. Yeah, like they shoot the laser beam. It came from over there. No, that's not how that works. <laughs> Well, it has to work because they only have 44 minutes and an hour-long TV to get, you know, the bad guy caught. So. That's right. But in your case, though, when you said it came out your neck, how close was it to your carotid? Uh, I mean, millimeters from my carotid um, and from my spine and everything. I mean, it, it was a, a lucky shot. I mean, unlucky for him, but lucky for me. So you get that first shot. What's the and you're down on the bank. When do you? When are you able to? Uh, when are you able to draw your weapon? Uh, pretty much, I. I in my mind, it was instantaneous. You know what I mean? Like as soon as I recognized what, that I was getting shot, because it, it it pissed me off. Not that like you know he's shooting me or whatever, but it was more of like a he cheated. Like you know you you jumped the gun or whatever it is. Like you didn't tell me we were doing this type of pissed off. And I was like, I got something for you, and it's right here on my hip. I got something. So as I'm like moving my body and orienting towards him. And he was shooting. He starts, like, walking down on top of the embankment, like, f away from me. But every time I moved, he would look back and shoot at me. Did he think he had gotten you the first? I mean, do you think that he thought he killed you with that first shot or really seriously wounded you? I don't think the first shot. I mean, he uh, he. I mean, he shot five or six times, I'm sure, like, as I'm rolling. I, I don't know. You know what I mean? I never heard the gunshot. I never saw the gun. I never saw... I don't know how many rounds he shot as I'm rolling down that embankment. He didn't shoot me once and being like... You didn't see any muzzle flashes? No, I, I, I can't. The first one, I saw the muzzle flashes once I recognized he was shooting at me. But um, the first one, I, I don't know. 
if I saw a muzzle flash or like, you know, when you get punched in the face, like you see those, that, the stars and stuff. So, I mean, I don't know which one it was. So I can't say I didn't and I can't say I did. How close, would, how close do you think the muzzle was to you on that first shot? Inches. Damn. Was one of the things, I mean, he's, he's, uh, he's a black male wearing a dark hoodie and, the, and he's got a, as we find out later, right, he's got a Glock. Yeah, he had a Glock 21. Which is what caliber is that? 45 caliber ACP, 45 ACP. So you get hit with the 45 caliber. So part of that too is that that's all kind of concealed too. When you look at the skin tone, when you look at the, uh, uh, the hoodie and the Glock itself is a darker colored pistol. You know, it's that polymer. But that was the thing is I, I never saw it. I mean, I wouldn't think about that, but like I've been in so many foot chases before with people with guns and I, you, they, they, they have tells, you know, I can tell when they're, they're holding their waist, they're, I can see the bulge in their jacket. Like I, I'm not saying I didn't see it, but I didn't rec- recognize any tells that he had a gun on on this particular one. So that first shot happens. Basically, you're facing each other. He's got a hand on you, but he comes up. Uh, was it his right hand? I'm guessing. Okay. He's he was right-handed. So I mean, I don't. I mean, I, that's again. I don't. I I never saw it. I, I didn't know I was getting shot. I never saw the gun until I was already shot and on the ground. So when you're on the ground and you're down there, when he's shooting the other times, do you feel any impacts with the other shots that are coming at you? No, I don't. I didn't feel any of my other impacts. Well, let's let's talk. Let's walk through then the first shot. You're down there. He's up now walking away from you. Like I said, you're like about five, six feet down. He's about five, six feet up walking away from you. You start to get back up. Um, are you able to get back up? Are you um, physically, are you able to stand back up? What's the what's your next process? I was physically able to, I didn't make it to it. So I drew my pistol and I started to engage him while laying on the ground, strong hand only. I was engaging him and like using my other hand to push me up off the ground. And I'm, as I'm like pushing forward and trying to get to my feet, trying to get to a good fighting stance, but I only made it to my knees because when he saw me, that big motion of me drawing my pistol and like attempting to to stand up, he started closing back on me, trying to put me down. Is he running at you or walking at you? I'd say walking. I I mean, it happened pretty quick, but yeah. I don't remember him really running or you know putting any kind of effort like that into it. So when you get your gun out and he's got his gun out, how far apart are you guys now? I'd say five yards. Okay, so about fifteen, maybe. Well, I mean, well. 15, 20 feet. The, the, the gunfight went from contact to 10 yards back to contact just by judging by where people's brass was, you know, spread out through. So I really want to maybe my first shot, he was at like, he may have been at 12 because he started coming back at me probably as my first shot. So he was right around that 10 ish, maybe seven. I don't know where he was at when we like, but seven yards is maybe 10 to seven yards. So when you're up on your knees, how many shots are you able to get off? In total, I shot 14. So by the time I put my hands back on him, I shot 11. Had you gone to slide? How many, how many rounds did it? Had you gone to slide lock or did you still have rounds? No, we have 16 in the gun and a Glock 22. 15 rounds in the mag, one in the pipe. As you're firing, do you see that you're hitting him? Do you see any impacts? I don't see impacts. I'm, I'm watching my front sight as it settles back down. I'm, I'm giving him a, a, another round and I'd give him another round. Um, he would, he was walking straight towards me and then he kind of started walk working from my left to right. 
and kind of showing me his back and still like shooting at me. Very similar to like a kid trying to like, if you're spraying a kid with a hose and he's trying to outrun it, you know what I mean? That, that, that kind of look. So I didn't see the bullets hitting him, but, but did, were you confident that you were hitting him? Yeah, I was confident. I was, and I, I got a, like a lot of good information from, from people who've been in shootings before. This was my second shooting that I was been in, um, that, you know, bad guys will continue to do what they were doing prior to you shooting them until you put their lights out or they give up. There is no pain compliance. There is no, there it's, that's, it's going to be a decision by them. So if you can get a change in what they were doing, like when you engaged them, you're probably doing good work. Cause like really the human body is super unimpressed with bullets, like especially pistol bullets. Like you can, like if you don't hit anything vital, you can take a lot of bullets. Yeah. In the short term. Yeah. Yeah. So walk us through that. So you're firing back at him. He's coming down at you. When, when do you get back to where you're close enough? You can go hands-on and what's that decision like? Well, I don't really know if I made the decision at that point. It was just kind of like through fighting and through training. I knew like I got to close that gap. I got to, I got to close it up and give me the benefit. So he closed the gap far enough away that I didn't want him to stay at the distance he was at because he could shoot accurately at me, and we're at a very close distance, so you can do that. So I lunged up, and I grabbed him, and I pulled him to me. So like I, as I pulled him to me, it was like belly to back. like So his head's kind of facing away from me, but like around like my, my under, just underneath my chin, chest area. And I, and I just grab him, and I still fall back using my weight to pull him with me. And as soon as we hit the ground, I put my muzzle to his head, and I give him three contact shots to his head, ending that fight. Everybody wants to come up with something witty to say or think they've got tremendous insight, but it's one of those things. It's just that you were, you were literally in a fight for your life, and at that point, it was like the decision was is that you can either shoot into the body like you, can, like you talk about pumps, you know, or you can go after switches, and the brain is the biggest switch in the body. So... That was really the way to stop this fight, right? Right. And that's the deal is if you think you're going to think about this stuff in the moment, you're fooling yourself. All this stuff is pre-decision, predetermined decisions made through training. Like you go to train, like that's where you get your groundwork. Almost my body was just responding and doing things that it's trained. Like I think when I think back on it, I remember grabbing him and starting to fall and like as my muzzles come into his head, it's like kind of when I remember like, oh man, I decided to headshot him. You know what I mean? Like, cause it was just like, the, it was, that's where I give the Jacksonville Sheriff's Office and the SWAT team so much credit is they had my training, you know, once the, once the decision is made, that's the hard part, right? Is making the decision of when you can shoot, who you can shoot, should you shoot. But once the shooting goes and the violence goes, it becomes automatic. Based on your training, did you have enough awareness to know uh, in terms of your ammo situation? Do you know how much ammo you had uh, kind of a sense that you'd gone through at that point? I knew I shot a lot. I didn't know where I was at. Did you hit, did you hit slide lock after the third round to him? No. No, I still, still had, had one in the pipe two. and one in the mag. You know, and that's uh, – and, and when you're in those situations because of your training, you're recognizing opportunities. And just like you said – there was an opportunity for you to end the fight. Right. It's not like, all right, I'm going to bring him down. I'm going to get his head in the right position. I'm going to put my gun against it, and I'm going to pull the trigger. Yeah, no. I, I'm going to fight from the position I have, and then I'll work to a better one. Yeah, because the, the danger is at this point is that 
if you don't stop him, he's armed. You think you've hit him, but you can't really tell at this point. He's a danger now to Chris or anybody else coming up. He's a danger to Chris. He's a danger to anybody. He's a danger to me. He's closing down trying to kill me. Yeah. Like that was the that was the main thing is, you know, he made the decision to close that gap on me, which was stupid. Like I, that that gives me kind of a little bit of joy that knowing like the last thing going through his head was like, holy cow, who, what is this? Like, who did I just mess with? And that makes me, that's because, yeah. From the time the final shot is fired, the final contact shot, how long before Chris shows up? Seconds. Um, but within that time, it was probably maybe five seconds that like, so I sent you that audio. You can listen to Chris's audio. And at the beginning of the audio, you can actually hear the gunfire happening because Chris wasn't calling in the gunfire, he was calling in the foot chase, but he was close enough to us that it happened. So when with, during the gunfire, he probably I, I'm, he stopped behind those trucks a little bit and then was like working to get to me. So in the meantime, you know, and this is where training comes in. Like I was always trained, we handcuff dead guys, we handcuff bad guys. Like it's not over until he's like, because we don't know if he's dead or what's going to happen. Um. And it just, your brain kicks into that. So there was a culvert right there next to us where we were laying. And I kind of rolled his body into the culvert. And me staying on my back, I started kicking him into the culvert and like pushing me away. But the whole time, I kept my gun on him. I kept cover on him. Just like you're saying, he was not going to hurt Chris. He was not, I was going to hand, if he got up, like I don't know where, to, like I just killed him. I felt his body go limp. I felt the life leave him. I just rolled his lifeless body into a dam like consciously i know this but that's not the brain you're operating with at that point and like so as i'm kicking him and i keep in cover i'm like i guess my mind's thing is this dude a vampire or a zombie or what did i say you know what i mean whatever if, but if he gets up he was going to get more bullets like that's just how it was and i kept cover on him until my until chris showed up and then actually like you know hey man holster up like we're good to go i got this from now on from this point on. You mentioned the audio. Uh, one of the great things about this little platform, let's let's play this audio. It's about a minute 40, but um, you just sent the audio to me, so let's hang on. Let's play the audio so people can actually hear what it was. Somebody, What's your ten twenty? Ninety four hundred Atlantic Boulevard. Suspect or individual description. HQ Rescue ten sixty eight, ninety four hundred Atlantic. Officer down. 252, Delta 242, 1026, Delta 757, 10, 26. What business are you at? Where's he at? Thank you. We're in front of the uh, storage place, 94 Atlantic. Officer down. Rescue 1068. 781 of that unit is a suspect outstanding. Can you give any information on it? 
Suspect's 18 also. HQ 108, or 108 Division is shut down Atlantic Boulevard in that area right there in front of that place. So, Jared, tell us, I mean, after listening to that, he's like, you know, Chris is just like calm, cool. He's like, he's ice water in his veins. He's the ice man. He just, for the shooting, for everything that's going on, he is just precise on target with all of his transmissions. I mean, I mean, you would think other people, Steve, I think you're mentioning other people get in chases, they scream, right? They yell, but he's like, he's like a day at the office. Well, and that's, I mean, he's elevated, but he's not to a point where it's, he doesn't let his emotions take over his body. He has a job to do. Like that's where mindset comes in. Cause you got to think too, it's like, he's looking at his best friend on the ground, shot to shit. And, you know, and a dead guy laying in a culvert. Like, he's got a lot of stuff going on, and he was still doing his job. I think that's – and I think him being so calm kept everybody else – like, he didn't let that spin out of control. Like, that, if you – you can start seeing when, like, scenes, like, when you, on video or on audios, when people start letting it get out of control, it spins out of control. And he's the one that kept that whole scene, I think, dialed in. Yeah, you set the you set the stage from the beginning. You set the narrative from the beginning. Is everybody stay calm? You know, that's what we're going to do. Because to your point, otherwise people feed off the excitement. They feed off of everything. And if somebody's elevated, then somebody else gets elevated because of that. And same thing with dispatchers too. If dispatchers handle it calm, they keep everybody else calm. You know, as they do this. So, from the time Chris gets there until the time you're, the first units arrive on the scene, how long does that take? Within a minute. I mean. People were right there, like in like our substation for the the department is in Regency Square Mall. So I mean, like the police substation is right there. Um, the fire department. I mean, it, I mean, we had 10, 15 officers there before you could bat an eye. You know, and and just back to Chris, his professionalism and the way he handled. I mean, you guys are both experienced officers, and you've heard people come up on the radio and they push that mic button down and they won't let go. And that ties up the entire radio so nobody else can ask the important questions. So his professionalism and short, concise information, get the word out there and get off that damn radio so other people can get involved. Oh, That's fantastic. Sure. I mean, if, if for, he did a great job. I mean, there's people not here today because they stayed on a radio too long when they should have been fighting or they should have been doing stuff. You know, right. like there's work to be done because like people get on that radio and they trust that radio so much. Nobody's there is going to come through the radio to help you, right? Right. Your help is what's there right now. Get start getting people there, but you got to do work. I mean, well, and if you need, if there's a, if there's an important question, right? You, know, you can't get that out there if they got the damn mic keyed up. Oh yeah, for sure. Not everybody needs to hear what everybody thinks. It's just like, hey, I'm in a fight. Here's where I'm at. Get me help, and then yep. you know you got to get mm -hmm. to work. So yeah. Yeah, I know you found out a lot about this, but when the time, the, the fight is over, how many times have you been shot and where have you been shot at? I got shot a total of seven times, uh, one through the jaw. I took three to cross my, my body armor, uh, kind of one on my like near my left clavicle, one dead center in my sternum, and then one on my right rib cage. Um, then I took one above my left knee, exited out high on my left thigh, one in my right buttock that like when it hit my hip, cracked my hip and lodged there. And then like a graze of my, my right elbow. 
the body armor, we talked about how many changes there have been, but had you not had your body armor that day, that shot to the sternum most likely would have been fatal, right? The shot to my sternum and probably the shot to my ribs. I mean, I mean, it was, you know, the sternum, most definitely the ribs, who knows? I don't know what angle it hit at. Like, you know what I mean? That could have like traversed my whole body. I don't know what angle it, it took the round at, but yeah, without body armor, I wouldn't be here today. Well, but the other thing too, you talked about hitting near your clavicle, you're left-handed and it hit on your left side. So if it had gone through and broken through your clavicle, you might've lost use of your strong hand, right? Oh, for sure. So are you proficient with your weak hand? We trained to, to draw, you know, we trained to do it all. But I mean, again, it's still, that's a terrible, that's a terrible day in an up-close fight. I mean, because time matters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. Speaking of time, from the time that um, you first engaged him, when you're up close, you separate, and then you're back in the final shots. How long of a time are we talking about here? Just by like judging like how the amount of rounds I shot and like you, I've heard the cadence kind of how I was shooting roughly like four and a half to five seconds, you know, because just kind of how it, I can judge by how many rounds. So like right in that, that general time frame. So I mean, he's very fast and very violent. He fired 12 rounds. I fired 14. So 26 rounds went back and forth in about, you know, four to five seconds. That's putting some lead down range both ways. Holy yeah. cow. Other than the three contact rounds, where else had you hit him? I hit him in his right side, went through to his left. I hit him two in between his shoulder blades. Um, I hit him once in the right, like the right arm shoulder and then came into his chest. So I hit him a total of seven times too. And Except if let's assume that he was able to run away, he didn't come back and engage. Those shots would have been fatal to him, though, right? One of them. So the one that went through his side and through his stomach and his liver and his intestines, that would have been fatal, like at the OK Corral, like three days later or something. He would have died of dysentery or some shit. But with modern medicine, he would have lived in that one. The one that the one that hit his arm, it actually hit his bone and like dumped all of its energy and really didn't do anything. But so the two that hit his back, they were right in between his shoulder blades, like right on his spine almost. And like, that's like what we're trained to shoot, like center mass and perfect K5 shots. But like we said earlier, like bullets do funny things when they hit meat. So one of them punched in, hit his shoulder blade, didn't even break it or anything, but traversed it up and it came and exited out of his trap. So it was like, it's a pure meat hit, like no major structural damage, no major blood no bleeding no no real nothing um but the one that was uh, just an inch away from it like not closest to the spine that one punched in went through his rib cage through his lung and traversed up into his neck and severed his carotid so he was dead yeah there was no surviving that after he took that round that he would have been dead before chris even showed up but you have about you know five to eight seconds of life left that your brain could do without oxygen. And that's the difference in pumpers and switches. So he was, he was dead. He was a dead man fighting. He was still pulling a trigger and still walking to me because he didn't know he was dead. Damn. While you're out at the scene, we had a couple conversations, you know, and it's this, the self-talk or the talk from other people is also very critical too. Like you talked about, there's cops who have talked themselves into dying from non-fatal wounds because they had the wrong mindset. 
But there was a couple people. There was a couple things set out there on the scene while you were waiting for the ambulance to show up. I mean, Chris is cool-headed. You're like, yeah, okay, I've been shot, but hey, I'm going to be good. But had a couple what younger officers that uh, got a little bit hyperventilated. No, he wasn't even younger. He was older than us. He was just, and it's not that he got into police work for the wrong reasons. He got in for the right. He's a good cop. He's a he's a nice guy. He's. But there's always a but. But he wasn't ready for that side of the job. You know, he's never seen a police. He, he, if that was a gangbanger, he wouldn't, it wouldn't have bothered him for nothing. You know what I mean? Like he's seen death. He's seen, he's, he was a veteran officer. He just never prepared himself to look and see himself laying there. Is that's kind of where it, like, that's where his mind went almost. It was like, you see another brother in blue down and he never prepared for that. And that's sometimes in training, we always, we always win. We always do this. Well, that's not the truth. I won. I just got beat up a little bit. Those are the best games. Games when you just cream the opponent. That doesn't matter. But, you know, when you take when you're bleeding and they're bleeding, that's a good fight. Like, you know, what I mean, that's the battle worth fighting. So he but he wasn't ready for that. And like he saw it and he looked down and he, you know, me and Chris were over there like bumping fists and Chris is, you know, holding pressure on my leg, doing everything that he's supposed to do. And this he was just like in shock a little bit. And he was like, Oh my God, where's rescue at? He's going to die. You know what I mean? And I'm like, I ain't going to die. And I'm like, I can hear you, bro. Like, I'm good. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, I'm right here, bro. Like, <laughs> I was like, what does he see, Chris? Chris, what does he see? <laughs> you know, <laughs> what does he see that I can't? Yeah. <laughs> what aren't you telling me, Chris? <laughs> hey, I was going to ask you, you mentioned about the wound uh, that went uh, above your knee and came out your thigh. Did that prevent you from getting up? As you found out later, like you said, you just went to your knees. Did that prevent you from standing up? I don't think it did. Um, I I recognized it when I made it to my knee. I recognized like the pain like in my butt and in my leg, but it wouldn't have stopped me from getting up. Um, what stopped me is he just got close enough to me to where you could grab him to grab him. So, um, like really, my medical training was the only reason I stayed laying down on the ground when Chris got to me. Like I knew I took something. I knew I had an exit on my neck. I didn't know like if I should move around what I can injure by moving. You know what I mean? Like how, so like really I just stayed on the ground and stayed still because I didn't want to create an injury. Well, when Chris first got there, now you, you're, I mean, you know, you've been shot in the face, but you don't know where your other wounds are, right? So no, I mean, when Chris got there, tell us a little bit about what he did to, to do triage on you. So Chris did an amazing job. Like first he came up, he went and like, it's just funny how like your brain works. So like I'm keeping cover on the guy and as Chris is getting to me, he's kind of calling out to me and I would muddle, you know, something out. Like I would try to voice out so he can kind of understand where I'm at relation to, you know, when he breaks that. So when he tries to find something and, but when he came off, like I said, I'm down in a culvert looking up, there's like a street light behind him. He's a big dude. He's my best friend. He was like an angel coming to me like, Oh, oh and yeah. I, like I immediately get relaxed. Like, all right, cool. Chris is here. My best friend's here. We're, we're good. Well, you get he, relaxed. Almost. No, well, no, like I, I, I was relaxed. Until then, he like, started checking your leg. No, well, kind of. This is where, he, but he clicked me back into it because he stepped over top of me because he didn't see the guy laying in the culvert. He, didn't, he thought the guy may have ran off. He doesn't know what the deal is. And he's sitting there looking. Like he's got his gun drawn. He's like scanning the area. And I'm like, I'm on the ground going like, hey, bro, 
like, I'm down here shot, and you're up there trying to get some. Like, it kind of like, I was like, hey, bro, like, take care of me. It's my time. You know what I mean? Like, the gunfight's already over, but he didn't see him. So then, like, but he's like, where, and I could hear him saying, where's he at, Jared? Where'd he go? Where's he at? And I had to point to the culvert. He saw him. He went up, verified he was dead, then came back to me, holstered me up, holstered him up, and then went to work on medical. So, like, that's kind of how your brain, like, I was clicking in and out of, like, being dialed in like it when I saw him I I dialed out and then I had to get back into it and then when then he came up and started um doing like talking on the radio and doing triage with me well but when he did triage um yeah <laughs> tell us so, about his thumb <laughs> yeah so you know he, he 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 ripped my belt off he, he started taking my shirt and he would go in underneath my body armor feeling my body doing everything he's trained and then he started running his hands down my thighs and he sank his thumb real about all the way deep uh, into the exit wound in my thigh. And then because I knew I was hit there because that hurt. But also the look at his face and how fast he snatched it away because he just stuck his finger in through my thigh. <laughs> now, did he snatch it away because he stuck it in your thigh or because of the way you reacted to him sticking it in your thigh? I'm going to say because his, his thumb sunk into my thigh. Like he was like, <laughs> like that's not natural. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's not supposed to do that. <laughs> How long are you on the ground before rescue gets there and loads you up? Uh, a few minutes. I mean, nothing. I don't, it wasn't long. I mean, they were there pretty quick. You stay conscious the whole time? Yeah, I was conscious throughout the whole, whole deal. And like, that's like when I was in the hospital before, like I went into surgery, like that's just, I was like, doc, like, let's just hurry up and put me to sleep and let me wake up fixed. You know what I mean? Like, let me, let me go time travel. Like, let's just do some time traveling here. Yeah. I'm going to tell you what, as you probably figured out, it doesn't quite work that way. So, no, but I just wanted to, you know, I was tired of being up. You know what I mean? Like, well, you dump a lot of adrenaline. You obviously, you know, at that point too, it's just mentally everything. But when you get to the hospital, so you're on the way to the hospital, what, at what point do you, did, does Chris do it or do you do it? Do you call your then fiance, soon to be wife and let her know what's going on before she hears it on the news? Oh, I, I, I made Chris call her. So like, that was our plan. Like, like I said, like we were living together as a family. We were together. She was with me on my first shooting. Um, we always had a plan that if the incident calls for that, the sheriff's office will send someone to the house and notify her that like I've been involved in a shooting or I've been hurt or whatever it is. If she will hear from me, I will call her or somebody will call her before they get there. Like that is like, a, I'm on a time clock. Like I better tell her. And if somebody beats me to calling her, then, then we have a problem. You know what I mean? Like then I'm, I'm unable to do anything. And that's the only time she needs to worry. If you hear from me, it doesn't matter how bad it is. If you hear from me, I'm okay. Kind of deal. Now, was he able to call her while you were there at the scene? He wasn't able on the, well, we were at, still at the scene. Rescue was loading me up. They already cut my shirt off. And you got to remember, like, I was on the phone with her when we, like, left mall security office to go get into this. So it's like maybe five minutes later or something, you know, you know, 10 minutes at most. Um, they cut my shirt off, but my, my phone was in my, like, my, my, my shirt pocket. So, I made Chris jump off the rescue wagon because he was riding with me to get my phone to come back to make sure. And it's funny because he's like trying to hand me, like he was going to dial, but like let me talk. And I was like, nah, buddy, like you're doing this. I don't this. think and I that, can talk, yeah. <laughs> but he didn't want to do it. Like he was like, I don't want to like, be this guy. 
but like we were best friends. We're, you know, our families know each other and, you know, so, and he called the best. It's, it's a funny story. Cause he kind of calls her and he's like, Hey Julie, what's going on? She's like, nothing, Chris, what's up? And like with her, she's like, why are you calling me? Jared? I just she got, knew you know he was I mean? working with you. Why are you calling yeah. from Jared's phone? And, uh, he's like, well, you know, we got in a little bit of a gun battle, not a big deal. Jared's been hit and we're going to the, we're going to the ER, like, you know, get your, get Fletcher and, and let's, you know, uh, wait a minute. He calls her up and says, Hey, what's going on? Like, no, she's like, what's going on, Chris? Like, yeah, but he was calling me. He was like, Hey Julie, you know, Hey, and she's like, Hey Chris, what's up? Like, what are you doing? And he's like, ah, we were in a little bit of a gun battle. It's not a big deal. Like <laughs> it was just a, it was a very calming, just like he did on the radio. He kept her calm. He kept, he, he, he was the one I wanted to handle that situation. Could you hear what he was saying to her then the whole time? Oh, yeah. Like, I'm on the gurney or whatever, and he's, like, sitting on the side bench in the ambulance. And how long did that conversation take? Two minutes, maybe. You know what I mean? It wasn't long, but that, that was it. And that's all I had to worry about. He didn't have to, like, my wife was great because, like, every time I get involved in something, she knew that she has to call my older brother who's in law enforcement and he handles the family. Like, you know what I mean? So she doesn't have to do anything, but call like we had a plan in place for when these things, when incidents happen. Like, so, so I didn't want my mom to hear about it on the news and not anybody call her. So, cause you know, things get mixed up. So everybody had a job, you know, she called my Chris's job was to call her or my job is to make sure she's notified. And then it's up to Rod to, to deal with everybody else. So, they get you to the hospital. How long is it before you're in surgery? Did they take you in right away? No, I had a, probably hour and a half or so. I mean, it's just all kind of like a blur or whatever, you know. But no, I was up. I was, my family was able to come in and like and sit with me and do all that. And you know, I'd go back, get a CAT scan, come back, and um, it was kind of cool because it was just great that the amount of police that showed up to the hospital, like we took over like that floor, like when they would wheel me places I could look and it was a sea of blue, which was cool. Cause I was like, well, at least I, people like me. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> they like me. They really like me. Yeah. They really like me. So, you know, uh, it was just cool to see that. Well, plus it takes, when you get to the hospital, I had to take my partner to the hospital when he got shot in Miami and, and it takes a while. And this time, you know, by the time you're getting there, you're eight thirty at night, maybe. And there's probably not a surgical team on duty at the hospital at that time. So they've got to call people. They've got to determine the extent of your damages, make a decision which way they're going to go, call the team in, all that. Uh, but they gave you morphine for the pain? Yeah, they gave me some morphine. They gave me, um, But they couldn't give me too much because they didn't know what they were going to do. You know, yeah, they didn't know when you were going to go under the knife, yeah. Right. So, And I wasn't in too much pain. Like It was, it was all right. Um, as long as you keep my, Chris away from that leg wound. Yeah, yeah well, keep his thumb out of your ass. Yeah. Well, no, that, that's not the worst. I'm going to tell you right now, don't go to a trauma center because, you know, the Shans is the trauma center here, and I call it the Shans handshake. You go in there, you're getting something in your butt, and it is terrible. Like, they came up to me, and it was a like my wife and my dad sitting there, and the nurse comes up and says, hey, we're going to have to check for internal bleeding. You know, you, you took a round to your butt. We got to – and I'm like – no, nah, I'm good. Like, I'll vouch for it. Like, I don't need to sit here and take that. You know what I mean? And then finally, they're like, no, nah, we got to do it. And I was like, all right, go ahead, whatever. And then she steps out, and then old Sausage Fingers comes around from behind her, <laughs> lubed up and whatever, and rolls me on my side. 
which is kind of funny because they rolled me, like they were on my left side, they rolled me onto my right side and I was shot in my right buttock and it, the blood pooled up a lot inside my buttock. So it did like, not really, it was, I guess, internal bleeding, but but it was kind of trapped in the skin. So when they rolled me, like that looked like Play-Doh of blood shot out onto the, the gurney. And my wife was like sitting next to me and she was like, and going out. Like, you know I mean? like, so, she, so she started like getting, and, and then old sausage fingers had to check me for internal bleeding. That was probably the worst pain of it all. Oh. I was like, oh man. And it was just terrible, man. Cause it's like days later in the hotel, I'm still all greasy bootied. I'm like, man, this is just <laughs> terrible. Like, I gotta, someone got a wet wipe or something. Like clean me up. Yeah. Let me tell you what, man, that's uh, those, uh, that sticks with you for a long time. <laughs> well, yeah. yeah, you know, and it's good that you could laugh about it now. It's necessary, but damn, it's not comfortable, is it? No, it's definitely not comfortable. Yeah, and you know, when you see a proctologist, it has a whole new meaning for you. But I'll tell you the other thing, too, about trauma centers, too. This is one thing I learned, too, working cases, and even when I had a minor, nowhere near years. But pain is a diagnostic tool for them. They don't really care that you're in pain. They just want to know you have pain or certain things work and stuff. So right. jamming needles into your foot and doing stuff is like, okay, good, that works. It's like, how can you be so cold? How can you be so heartless? You know, it's, it's a like job. A like we would chamber. say, it's a job. How can we work homicide scenes or go to shootings? It's a job, you know? Yeah. It was, it was, it was, it was funny. Like, so like speaking of proctologists, my brother, he's older than me. He had to go get, um, his, the prostate exam. Yeah. The prostate or colonoscopy or whatever. And uh, like, they make him drink all those things for like 24 hours. And he's like, man, it's I'll called colon you. blow. I've had that. It's called colon blow. You drink it. There is nothing left in your fucking intestines when you're done. Everything you ate from eight years ago <laughs> is coming out. Red velvet cake, 10 years ago, it's coming out, baby. Yeah, so he's like talking to me, and he's like, man, it's the worst. You couldn't imagine not being able to eat for 24 hours. It was like he's t- – and I said, bro, are you telling me? Like my jaw was wired shut during this incident for like eight weeks. And I was like, I didn't have any – like don't tell me about 24 hours of liquid diet, bro. Like he's like, yeah, sorry. I didn't I, – my bad. I'm the wrong didn't person think to that talk through. to. <laughs> <laughs> You're not going to get any sympathy out of me on that one. Well, you know, this very similar to episode 26, Claudia Polinar. She was the L.A. sheriff uh, deputy who was shot in the face. Same thing. She had her jaw wired. She made him blend up. What was it, Steve? A burrito or a taco? Just yeah. so she... <laughs> so... What was the... or something. Oh. Yeah. oh, God. I can't... Blending a burrito. I'm sorry. It just does not carry the... They tried all that. That's... Oh, man. A team member of mine, great guy, came in and, like, his mom had her jaw wired shut. So he had like a whole cookbook and then he had like an IV bag that had like a tube that you're supposed to run behind, like, and all these recipes that, that you could just blend them up and like squeeze it. But, oh my God, it made me, I almost gagged. How much weight did you lose? 180 in the hospital. Not much. So I was in the ICU, got shot Saturday night. I checked myself out of the ICU t- Tuesday morning. <laughs> I did not want to be there. Like I was, I wanted to get like, I didn't know that was an the- option when you've been shot on duty. Yeah. It was an option for me. I wasn't staying. Like that was like one of the first things that I was. I was like, "Get me the hell out of here." Like, Where'd you go? Home. I went home straight from ICU to home. Yep. Like they were like, "Well, if you can walk, we'll let you go home." I was like, "Stand by to stand by, guys." And so I walked around the floor, like stumbled around, like, and they're like, "All right, I guess you can do it." 
Hold my beer. Here I go. Uh, that's yeah. exactly what I was going to say. Hold my uh, beer. Hey, yeah. now, you know how cops are. Even when you've been shot and stuff, everybody's still got a sense of humor. Did anybody screw with you while you were in the hospital? Any of your buddies? No, not in the hospital. I mean, because I wasn't there long enough for it to be okay. Like, you know, I had a re- super high fever. So, like, that's what they were worried about. They thought I was going to die from, like, the fever. Like, they couldn't get it down. So, I got I went, like, let's say 9 o'clock at night, 9.30, Saturday night. I don't remember anything until, um, like, I guess it would be late Sunday night or early Monday morning type deal. Because they, I mean, I had like a, like 103, 104 fever they were trying to beat. So they kind of kept me, um, not in a coma, but like just drugged up. <laughs> well, so you're able to beat that fever and get out of ICU and go home by Tuesday. Yeah. Wow. So what kind of system, what kind of support system did you have to have set up at home to help you recover? Uh, my wife mostly, she helped, but then, um, I had docs that would come by the house or I'd have to set up appointments to go. Um, I had SWAT medics that were, you know, on the team and close to me. They'd come check on me and things like that. That was one thing that like in the hospital, like I was barely peeing, like I was super dark pit. Like my, my piss was so dark. I'm like, look, I'm dehydrated. And I'm trying to tell them because I had to write everything on this notepad that I had. And I'm like, get me some fluids. Give me like, give me fluids and they wouldn't do it. They wouldn't do it. And literally I got home. Some medics came by and they gave me, I took like two bags, like drank them like quick through an IV. And like, I immediately felt better. Like my bones weren't aching. It took a lot of ache away. Like it, it, like just the fluid getting back in me. So, I mean, it, that helped out. And then I started peeing, you know, back to a regular color instead of peeing pancake batter. So important stuff. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's no fun. It's funny now, but it's important. And for those folks listening, uh, in Jared's alternate life, he's also a novelist, and he writes graphic descriptions for true crime <laughs> novels. <laughs> I peed pancake better. I have never heard that one before. <laughs> I can only imagine pancake better. But you're right. The color is, uh, you know, mellow yellow is kind of what they want to go for. You want something that's light, but not, you don't want it. You don't want it totally clear, but here we are talking about urine. Well, that's what I, I mean, I get where they were at. They didn't want to wash out the intravenous drugs that they were giving me. Like, so I get it, but I mean, I don't know. I just, I kind of know my body and I was like, I need something. (laughs) I need some fluids. Let's talk about your recovery. Um, it takes you about six months, right? From the time you're shot till the time you can go back to duty. But what's it like during that time? You've got... It, one of the biggest things I'm I'm sure right is is the shot through the jaw and you know through the mouth your teeth and stuff. So how do they work on that? They really like that was like all the major surgeries. Everything else was just kind of wound care. So I'd have to go to wound care, like physical therapy outside, like three days a week. Um, and the the shot to my ribs really sucked because like that was like uh, I used to wear like a cotton wife beater tank top as like my undershirt under my, and when that bullet hit it put in that energy, it pushed a lot of that shirt into my body. So like my body would start like exuding that start pushing it out. So like they'd have to like scrub that wound with a nail brush every, and then like that stuff would come, they would just pick it out and things. So really the round, like, did it penetrate your vest and go into your chest? Is that what you're saying? No, I mean, it, did, did it, 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 it got stuck like in the, third layer but like when that's you that's what i mean hit, but it it, depre- it it 
penetrated, but didn't break through the Kevlar, but it penetrated into your body, at least pushed through a little bit, right? No, not the bullet. The the armor itself, it's just, it's almost like a burn. Like I sent you a picture of it. It looks like a triangle. It's almost like a burn that just, it's a lot of, it's a big energy transfer. I mean, it, that's all it is. It, the, it didn't penetrate anything. It was just, just, but it took that shirt and pushed the, that fiber into my body. And then my face, when my face got infected, which was, which was really jacked up. Um, but the other wounds were just kind of like, really taking care of them, like filling, packing them and unpacking them and letting like the muscle grow out instead of like a big scar and things like that. So they did a really great job at wound rehab. Did you have to go visit Dr. Sausage Fingers again? No, no, hell no. I wasn't, I wasn't seeing that guy. I mean, they hit me with, they catfished me is what they did. They sent the, the, the girl in and I was like, all right, yeah. And then they came in from the backside. I was like, oh, you got me. <laughs> Literally. Yeah. <laughs> Worst dentist I ever had. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. That... <laughs> Larry, the cable guy, I got to give him credit for that. So um, how long, how many surgeries have you had on your jaw? I probably had about 15 to correct it, everything. Um, Are you done it. with the surgeries or you still got more? Uh, hopefully I'm done. Um, like the whole bottom left half of my, my teeth is fake. So I mean, I might have to get that like. Fix so those like a bridge and implants that go all the way through there, but hopefully I'm done, you know. But if I'm not, it's just part of the game, you know. I just gotta gotta roll with it and get it fixed. Um, what were what were some of the after effects though of being shot? You said you've lost, you had nerve damage, you've lost sensation. Yeah, so I have zero feeling. Like so, like my bottom lip is numb, and it's like all the way down. So it's almost like a goatee of numbness, I guess you could say, all the way through my face. So. So is that why you have the beard? So it, when you slobber on yourself, it's got some it place to catch it. At least, you know, my buddy, my buddies get a big <laughs> kick out of it when we drink beer and stuff, and it starts running down the side of my face. <laughs> same thing we said to Claudia. Said, "Hey, yeah, we'll just that same thing with her. Same nerve damage, you know, yeah. stuff it's dribbles out the face. Nerve that runs down that jaw once you, you know, and they're like, well, it might come back, and then like the, like that's what they kept saying. And then my the maxillofacial was like, it's no, it's not even there. Like it stops like right here. On me. <laughs> He's like, it's not growing back. Do you have to worry about burning yourself or anything that you drink something hot? You can't, can you still, does the tongue, can you still, uh, any damage there? Or I have burnt my lips, like putting my lip to something hot and like sipping and like, Oh shit, that's real hot. But I've already burnt my lip, but I don't know. I don't. Yeah. I mean, I guess I've done that, but I don't really make it as a concern. I guess. Yeah. Don't look a stove. That's, that's the best yeah. advice I can yeah. give you. Um, Hey, well, it took you six months. What was work like when you came back? What were you allowed to do after you came back? Well, when I came back, I went right back to the SWAT team, right back to full duty um, and getting back at it. Like, you know what I mean? It was, that was it. <laughs> and life is normal. Like, that was the thing is, like, even my wife or anybody will tell you, I never, it was never, you know, is Jared ever going to come back to work? Like, I wasn't, like, it was when is Jared coming back to work? It was never an if. It was always a when. That So that first day back, a little celebration there. At the SWAT office or what? I mean, a little bit. I mean, but I don't know. It's not like that. I mean, they, everybody, we've already celebrated. Like all those guys have already been with me. They've already been, you know, I've been out with them. You know, I've done stuff. It was just like, welcome back, bro. Like time to get your ass back to work. Let's go. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Here's your caseload. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> no rest for the weary. Yeah. You know, you got a great mindset, and that's part of the thing, too. It's, it's what they call a growth mindset, too. It's not a fixed one. It's like you always wanted to learn from something. You took these tests, you know. Um, and so coming back on your first day, how did the how did your view of things change? Now you put the uniform back on. You've been involved in one shooting beforehand. You were involved in a couple later. But when you came back to work, how did your worldview change based upon the fact now you were the one that got shot? It really didn't, man. Like So the, this shooting, it validated all the training that I did. Like that's like that's the – the good part about it. Like it just valid. Like I didn't change like my training program. I didn't, I was, I was like, wow, this stuff is really working. Like this is when I saw it in real life happen to me. So it validated everything. Um, you know, it validates all the hard work you put in the gym, all the hard work you put on the range and, you know, doing these scenario trainings It you understand some of the pain that you thought was maybe a little bit of hazing, but it's actually setting you up to do, you know, you don't fully understand it when it's happening, but it, it, it gets you through things. Like, you know, that was like one good thing about it was like, I, I've hurt myself more than I really got hurt in the shooting. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I felt more pain that I've done and I've endured it and I've, I've made it through it. So like the pain isn't a dictator of how bad things are, I guess. So, I mean, it, it was pretty cool. I mean. I was, I started reliving the, the doubt of a, like a early policeman who's never been in a shooting. How will I act when a, when a shooting comes? You know what I mean? Um, like before my first shooting, I was, you know, you're, you hope that you're going to do okay, and, but you don't really know. And then I felt okay. And I felt almost proven by that point. But I didn't know. So when I got into my third shooting, like, you know, I told people, I was like, I needed that. And like, people are like, you don't ever need to be in shootings. You don't. And I'm like, look, when people's lives depend on whether or not I can pull a trigger and I'm not going to freeze, I'm going to do my job. I needed that. You know what I mean? Like, cause that's, I know that I'm going to do the right thing when it, when it, when it has to happen and I'm not going to freeze and I'm not going to let my nerves take over. Right. Or PTSD or bad yeah. memories or whatever you want to call it. Right. Yeah. And it's, and it's like self verification that you're still good to go doing this job. Right. And that, that was the thing is I, I have like PTSD from that shooting. Um, but it's more physiological than psychological. Like when I don't sleep at night, it's not like bad dreams. It's not that it's, you know, when your body goes into that protection mode where bullets don't hurt, <laughs> you know, it dumps all that adrenaline and all those chemicals in your bloodstream. You now become susceptible to it. And like, sometimes your body just starts releasing those things into your bloodstream and you're not going to sleep. And like for a while, like that was hard for me to, um, to take like, or to understand. And like, I had to talk to friends that have been involved in things and, and they're like, yeah, bro, that's part of it. Like that's, but you know, it's physiological, not psychological. Cause the psychological, I'm like going like, bro, you're not a pussy. Like what, what are you doing, man? Like, like tighten up. We can, we can get through this, you know, go to sleep. And cause it wasn't ever like, I'm worried about a shooting or I'm worried. It was just like, <laughs> if they say it's hypervigilance, you know, like if I had to mow the grass tomorrow, like I would sit there and think about mowing the, like what time am I mowing the grass? Like, you know what I mean? And it would just keep me up. So like now just understanding it, and accepting it 
like when I feel it happening, I, I can feel it. It's like I'm like a kid on Christmas Eve, you know. My feet get anxious. I can feel it spool up in my chest. And I'm just like, all right, well, Jared's not going to sleep for a little bit, you know. And I'll go to the couch so I don't mess up with my wife or whatever and watch TV. And just, yeah, I'm up for a little bit. But I'm not making it, I'm not spooling it up worse, like worrying about it or pushing it and things like that. And like I tell guys all the time, like, man, we earn that shit. Don't think it, you're you're faulted because you have it. Because guess what, man? You know, accountants don't get PTSD. You earned it. That's what makes us heroes. That's what makes us, um, you know, the people we are, like servants. Because people don't get like, yeah, we do a job and we're doing that. But the scars on our soul and our heart, people don't see that. They can't understand it. And what's going on internally with like with all this stuff, you know, like all first or across all first responders, you know, you're not supposed to see people's bodies mutilated like we see in car crashes or whatever it is. Like that's not that's that's a scar on your soul, and that's because we bear that, and we we put our name in the hat over and over and over again, and come home and try to live a normal life. You're not normal, but that's what's great. Like some people are like. Hey, I don't understand how you can do that. And I'm like, cool, I don't understand how you sit behind a desk and do you. But you do you, I'll do me. And we just, that's what makes the world a great place. You know what I mean? I'll protect you when shit goes off. You just keep my taxes in order. <laughs> well, let me ask you, if you go out to, uh, say, a 4th of July celebration, you hear fireworks, has that ever had any effect on you? No. It's, I mean, I still go to the range. I still shoot all the time. I love it. Like, I love, I mean, it's America. I'm going to celebrate America. Like, it. I don't have a... I don't have PTSD like that. Like, it's not like I'm, it's, it's mine's physiological. Like, I mean, I'm, I'm damn near borderline pyro. You give me fireworks. I'll be, you can lure me away from anything. <laughs> Blow with, shit up. With yeah. a fire and some fireworks. I'm like, let's go. <laughs> well, in the, in the work and the training you do, you know, Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman heard of him. Yes, I do. Yeah. I, I know him personally. Oh, well, he's, he put out a essay and I think you, you may have read it. Have you read that one called on sheep wolves and sheep dogs. Yes. That, that is just the encapsulation of what you're talking about. In this society, we have sheep, and that's okay if you're a sheep, but there are wolves, and the sheepdog exists to live between the wolf and the sheep. And that's and people don't understand that mentality, but that's what it is. It's not a – very few people get into this line of work because they want to get into a shooting. A lot of people get into this line of work because they want to protect people. You know, They want to serve people, like you were saying. Sometimes that serving involves the use of force. Sometimes it involves writing a ticket. Sometimes it involves taking a life. And that's a that's a responsibility very few people, even the president of the United States doesn't have that kind of authority. You know, cops are one of the few people in society that are given that ultimate thing. And the way you've handled it, it's it's amazing too, because I tell you, I just read um, an email that just came out. I'm good friends with the folks that run the Virginia Association of Chiefs of Police. The the FBI now has been tasked by law to collect information on it's called the law enforcement uh, suicide data collection. Uh, but attempted and uh, uh, completed suicides. And the reason I ask you this is a lot of people have gone through this. Suicide is is the, is the number one killer of cops, you know, not on duty, not anything else. You know, it's been suicide for so many years. Um, how have you handled it? You said it's physiological, not psychological, but has the physiological part ever given you self-doubt? Have Has that, any of that ever crossed your mind, contemplated it? Um, no. I mean, I, I, it's... I love life too much to, to do anything with that, even when it gets bad or whatever. Um, and I mean, the suicide thing, it, it, it's, it's a real thing. 
but I don't, I, I'm not, and I think it's our egos that get us into those things that you feel weak or you feel when you start having these problems, you don't go for help. And like that, that's just ego ruining it and taking like, to me, I'm never going to let these people beat me from the grave. Like you're, it's not going to change the father. I am the man. I am the, the friend I am the husband. I am. It's not going to change any of that. You're not going to beat me from the grave. So, I mean, it might be just my will to beat them still that keeps me from doing that. But they're, if I committed suicide, they won <laughs> and I'm not, and that ain't going to happen. Well, that, there is something also very unique about this case too, because I have never heard of this happening before, but you got a letter from the suspect's mother. Well, maybe, I don't know. I don't, I, I don't want, supposedly, supposedly a family member with the mother sent this to the sheriff's office, sheriff's office gave like, there's a bunch of like, you know, I hate to say like fan mail or whatever, but people wrote the sheriff's office and they would deliver me letters. And supposedly one of them was from, and um, from what I know of the suspect's mother, she was a great woman. Like when, the, how I'm, I kind of think it was from them was when the homicide detectives went to her house to notify that her son was dead and that he shot a policeman. Her first response was, is the policeman going to be okay? Which that's just a good person. Like you can't like, you know, you just told your son's dead and you, you put, you understand that he did wrong and, you know, and she asked about me, which made it pretty awesome. But then like in the letter, they just said he wasn't raised like that. And he, he, uh, he just wanted to be a gangster. He wanted to be something that he, he wasn't raised to be. And, you know, I kind of believe it, you know, it is what it is. He may have turned out to be somebody. Okay. But your actions have consequences and I don't care what you might do at some point. He made a, he made a life altering decision. Bad, bad decision that day, you know, and that's, that's the thing. And I, I can't sit there and stress myself out. What would he do? Cause I don't care. I don't care what he did or why he did it. I don't care about the whys. It's what he did. And I put him down for it. You can eat yourself up wondering about that stuff. Right. You know, the fact that, that she took the time to write the letter, the comments she made to the officers that spoke to her, that does speak volumes to her being a good person because we've seen so many times in the past that when it's an officer-involved shooting, the family wants to hang the entire police department regardless of, you know, what that person's actions were. And I oh, love yeah. the way you said that. Every action has a consequence. That's something you should teach your children when they're young. It could be a good consequence. It can be a bad consequence, but there's a consequence. For sure. You know, and I want to make this sound trite, but I mean, it really gets down into, you know, people talk about, well, we need to retrain the police. And I, I've heard somebody say, well, maybe we ought to retrain the public in terms of when I was a kid, I got, I peed my pants the first time I ever got pulled over by a cop. I was drag racing out of Abilene, Kansas. I got pulled over by the Abilene and I peed my pants because I'm thought my life is over. It's, I had, I mean, it's not that they'd scared me, but it's like, but that's not the same level of respect that we have today. And my thought was, what was it in his life that made him decide pulling a gun was a better decision than putting his hands up, you know, and getting arrested? And it's just, to your point, it's that these, if pe compliance, just compl even, even if you don't like the arrest, get a lawyer, sue, what, that's what everybody else does today, but just put your hands up, let's everybody go home safe today, but somebody made a choice not to. Yeah, and um, yeah. And what had he stolen? 
Uh, he stole a pair of jeans, so he had two pair of jeans on. Like, you know, he went into the dressing room, put his jeans on, put his jeans on over top of him. And he had the money to pay for them in his pocket. So, I mean, people make bad decisions every day. So sometimes you <laughs> – but like to like what you're saying, like I have my own thoughts on why the we aren't respected as much anymore is we start putting police in too many spots in society and they're getting inoculated to us. It was a big deal for you to run into a – like I don't remember a policeman ever being at my house. I don't ever remember a policeman – you know what I mean? But now we're putting them in elementary schools. And not only is like for security, I get that they should be there for security, but they're doing all this stuff with the kids and all this and like social workers. Mediating family disputes and neighborhood complaints and being there like, you know, and what you're doing is you're just inoculating somebody to all that. And so now you're not the, the figure like that you should be like you, you are, what you represent, what is all right in society. Like that's what you should be representing. And, but instead they get the blame for everything that goes on. And I think we talked about that because we talked about that. How many, how many cases did you handle even on the street down there or even barricade situations or SWAT situations where it was a mentally ill person that is, you know, that somebody tried to mainstream into society and, you know, and you think, why is this person out? Why aren't they getting help? Why aren't they institutionalized somewhere? Right. All the time. I mean, that's the, I mean, that's probably 93%, 95% of our homeless population is mentally ill. You know, they need help with that. They're, they're not choosing to be homeless. They just don't have the, they don't have the necessary social skills and everything else to learn how to function. But again, then, then you put police in the unenviable position of, you can't arrest your way out of homelessness. You can't arrest your way out of mental illness. Why are we putting that burden onto the law enforcement system as opposed to why don't we have social and safety nets designed otherwise? Uh, you know, we talked about this. It's not so because much— you're talking about a whole other branch, right? Or I can send a police officer who's already getting paid to some 30-hour course put on by some bullcrap, and then I can say that they do it. It's just a cheap way to get their—because they're not—they don't want to open up another office and train up other people and pay. It's just cheaper to pay us, which then puts us in a, a bad situation— so when things go wrong, it's just like, oh, well, like I get like some of like the defunding the police. I get some of that stuff. We should be doing law enforcement. That's what we are. We're law enforcement officers. And they keep making these petty laws sometimes, and then it makes the police look bad. But really, they came up with this law like they did this. Yeah, like, the police you know didn't I mean? pass the laws. It was the politicians who passed the laws. Right. The politicians are saying this and like making it like, you know, what was it? Eric Garner that was in New York City. When they choked and he had a heart attack and they, you know, freaked out about oh, yeah. when they, so I get that the police officer, I don't think he used excessive force. The guy had a heart attack, but the reason he was there is because that guy was selling loose cigarettes, right? They call them Lucy's. Like it's a, just a, so you can buy a, you can buy a single cigarette. That's why they, they, they had a task force <laughs> designed to stop that. Because there's a tax thing. People were getting away from taxes and doing this. Do you think, like, as a kid, this guy's like, I'm going to fight the crime against <laughs> loose cigarettes. It's killing America. No. Some politician made that. Some politician made a task force to go out so they can do their thing. And that police officer didn't want to do Like, he just saw an opportunity to be on a task force where he can wear jeans and a T-shirt to work every day. It's going to up his career. He doesn't – that wasn't his life, but he had to enforce laws because that's the – that's what we take. 
So if you really want to get into it, stop making us enforce these laws. Stop making dumb laws. Well, that would require maybe some smart politicians, but that's a whole other topic. Yeah, because cigarettes, it's all about tax revenue. Gasoline, tax revenue. I mean, so many things revolve back to how are we missing out on collecting money, so we're going to pass a law against it. And then now we put the cops in the position of being de facto tax collectors as opposed to enforcing the law. Which is just – it's it's it, it's just terrible. Like, And then we're going to – and then you can't really say that to anybody because people are just like, no – but that's that's the truth behind it, you know. Hey, no, we. I can tell you, we've been out of the game for a while. I mean, you just recently punched out, but I, you know, think about it. How many cops would love to say, "No, look, we'd just like to get back to being cops and just dealing with, you know, the things that we should be in society, as opposed to caretaker, social worker, psychologist." You know, uh, there's a an, bunch. I mean, <laughs> and I think you would see society be different. Even working accidents is that really a law enforcement job? Because all that does that's a that's a mechanism for the insurance companies. That's exactly what that is. Like, you know what I mean? Unless there is, unless someone broke the law, like a serious, like if it's a minor civil infraction, then that just needs to be what it is. Like, unless someone's DUI or committed a crime, then the police shouldn't respond to it. If yeah. there's injuries, somebody's going to show up. But if it's a fender bender, look, you know, exchange information, be on your way. Not even, the insurance companies need to hire people to respond to these things. Right. You're exactly like, you right. You know what I mean? Or even like, think of like an alarm call. Why do the police even show up to an alarm call unless it's a, uh, like a robbery alarm, like one that's triggered, or you know afterwards to write the the burglary? But that's the deal: is you're never going to catch it. And how many fake false alarms there are just tie up police time so much when we're just working for them. They they can set up a call center and now they're an alarm company. They don't do anything except for monitor something. And then they call the police to go respond instead of their own foot. Well, look, they, they got to that point in many places. I had a friend of mine, chief of police down in uh, uh, Grand Prairie, Texas. They, they passed a, they passed a false alarm ordinance. Basically it's like after two, the, the price goes up. You wouldn't believe how fast people fix their own alarm systems and, and fix the problems. Once they started having to pay we money. We write alarm citations too, but it doesn't work. Well, we like, I think we, it depends I mean, upon the area of the country too. I mean, it's and it depends upon the size of the city. You're something like Jackson. How what's the population of Jackson? Jacksonville. Uh, Jacksonville population's roughly a million can fluctuate to like 1 2 during the day with, you know, yeah. people coming in. And so you got but I think the thing but the thing is the policing you do in Florida is not the type of policing they do in Texas or in California or New York or Kansas. Everybody's got to realize is that one size does not fit all. What works for you may not work somewhere else, but there are basic concepts. We get back to you know, people want to just get back to the basics of law enforcement, the community policing, you know, Sir Robert Peel, let's get back to the police or the public and the public or the police. You know, everybody's yeah. in this together. Um, hey, let's end on a better note. Um, cause I want to talk, <laughs> I want to talk, you've, you've actually taken and applied this in a very positive way. You've created a training company. Um, so let's, let's talk about that. Let's talk about the things that you're doing to, to transfer over these lessons that you've learned, you know, to, to help gen train the next generation and the current generation of people. Right. So, um, roughly 11 years ago, I started resting group training and, um, was that because of the shooting? It wasn't necessarily because of the shooting. It was that helped because I started like going around the country and talking in groups and doing my debrief and talking about my shooting. And like, that's when I started like realizing that not everybody has been trained the same as I have been. I lived in like a Jacksonville Sheriff's office bubble and, and how fortunate I was. I really didn't realize it. 
I thought everybody did that. And it wasn't the case. So like I started wrestling group training really to get um, law enforcement from a law enforcement, law enforcement training from a law enforcement guy on how like to really handle yourself and to, to deal with these situations. So we train um, law enforcement, military units, and also civilians um, on shooting and tactics and things like that. So um, you said you've actually grown pretty good, right? You're one of the largest training organizations? We're not one of the largest. We are one of the more respected. Um, we're, we get um, our names in the same circles with, with, with the big dogs, you know, so which that's what I like. You know, I'm just a policeman doing this stuff, and I got friends that are in Delta Force and all that stuff, and they have their companies, and we work together and, and like, and it's just kind of cool. Um, so how many conferences a year do you put on or training sessions? Training sessions. We probably put on over 20 training sessions, attend several conferences and talk. And I donate my time to like Texas tactical. Um, I always pretty much put a class on there trying to give back to the fellas. Um, and I'll do probably a couple other tactical officers, uh, conferences. Um, I've done probably almost every state's tactical officer conference speaking or, you know, donating time back because I feel like that's kind of my, I'm not doing it anymore. And the younger generation that's coming up, I think that they can learn from my lessons, you know, like I learned from guys before me, so they don't have to write their own book. Like they can have things and just make themselves better sooner is kind of what I'm Mike. That's my goal in life. So as a old warrior, like that's our job. Like that's keeps, that's what keeps me in the fight is getting the younger dudes fighting. <laughs> now you can point at the younger dudes and go, Hey, look, you go chase him now. Yeah. Hey, look, that guy's running, but I, I still can't do that. I still got to beat him. I still got to <laughs> get off the chair and go after him. Even in your yeah. walker, I'm going after this sucker. Hey, Man, um, there you go. But one of the other things you do too. So if you're in law enforcement out there, there is a name that is synonymous with law enforcement and equipment for, I mean, I can't tell you probably even before Merce time back during the colonial war, you know, the colonies, there was safari land. Back when yes. we had muskets. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, they were selling musket loaders for Murph. You know, it was a, right. it was the first speed loader for muskets Murph bought from Safari Land in 1792. <laughs> but uh, talk about what you do for Safari Land because I know you said you're not in sales, but that's the great thing about sales is that you don't have to sell anything. You tell people your story, you tell them what works. The, the stuff just sells itself. Right. Well, Safari Land sells itself without me. Um, Safari Land. Um, so I'm an account manager for Safari Land. I represent uh, Safari Land for North Florida and South Georgia. Um, I'm also a brand ambassador for them. I'm an armor shoot specialist for them. I do, um, kind of the Jack of all trades for them and they're just a great company and a great family to be with. You know, I've been associated with them since I was shot. Um, I was part of the saves clubs back then. And tell, I just tell everybody what that they is. They never cut me free. So the saves club in, for Safari land is if you're wearing Safari land vest and you're involved in an incident where that vest saved your life, you'll get a number, you'll get, you know, we bring you into the factory, we do all this and you become a save. I mean, it's, it's a kind of like a brotherhood, something that you really don't want to get into, but it's great. Once you make it, like you don't want to do it. You don't want to have to do what it takes to get into it. But once you're there, it's a, it's a great group. You know, um, we have over 2000 saves 
you know, it, it's it's an awesome program. But you've been recognized, though, in a lot of ways, too. Uh, when we had Mike Neal on here, Episode 7, he was the Arkansas Fish and Game Officer, got into the shootout with the two sovereign citizens, killed the two West Memphis police officers. I saw a picture of you, and it reminded me of him because you both are getting the same medal from the vice president at that time, Biden. Yeah. Well, the, I, so I got the um, – for this incident, I got the uh, Presidential Medal of Valor. Um, it was – Presented by Biden, but but awarded from Barack Obama at the time, and I mean it's it was it was an honor to do. You know, me and the family got to go to the White House and go up and and see, and it's the highest honor that you know law enforcement or first responders can get. So I mean, it was awesome, and like that was one of the cool things about the shooting. There wasn't a big outrage. It wasn't anything crazy. The the community stood behind me. Like I was like Florida's law enforcement officer of the year. You know, um tons and tons of you know our agency's officer of the year like it was a it was a a great show of support and like you know that was a big deal well, in fact it looks like that might be the photograph right behind you on the wall there as we're talking to you which our yeah, listeners can't see yeah well the folks can't see but we can see it right there too and i saw it in uh, one of the other pictures you sent too hey um you know nobody the medals the awards and stuff that comes afterwards but for you um what's the biggest lesson you pass on in your training that you learned out of this shooting that if, you know, if you had the chance to sit and talk to recruit, and I'm sure you've been brought into Jacksonville to their recruit classes or talk to yes. other people. What's, what's the message you give those people that are getting into law enforcement and what kind of message would you give people now that are contemplating a career? It's not even really in law enforcement. It's for anything. If you carry a gun, be prepared to use it. Just because you carry a gun doesn't make you, you know, you went through some concealed carry class, like really train how to use it. Be great at doing it because when it comes your time to use it, you know, have the training, have the ability to really do it. Cause making the wrong decision with that weapon, you can end a lot. Like you might not end your life, but you can end the, the life that you know, you know, with lawsuits and doing different things and just be ready for it. And, be a professional. That's kind of this what I try to tell everybody. Be a professional. Professionals, you know, they go to the range. They go to the gym. They go to, you know, they go get training. They do all these things to be better. And, like, that's just all I can tell people. Because all this stuff, you can hope for it, like we said. You know, you can hope that it turns out. But that ain't going to do, you know, like, even like a basic law enforcement academy, that's good enough to get you through an officer-involved shooting. It's not probably good enough to get you through a gunfight with skill. You need to start putting it through and, and like going that extra mile. Yeah. Hope is not a strategy, right? That's the minimum that you need. Final thing as we close up here, Jared, I want to talk to you about your mindset because that's one of the, that's one of the, always the key things that differentiates a lot of times success and failure, whether it's a shooting, whether it's, you know, in life and stuff, where do you think the early seeds of your mindset came from? Because you got a mindset that said, you know, hey, I'm good. I'm going to survive this. You know, you you had the it, – it's, it's the will to win. You know, you had that – not just survive, but to win. Where, where do you think the early seeds of that came from? I think I mean, the early seeds is probably just playing sports. You know, you're behind in a game and you don't ever give up and you just keep fighting until the end, until that last whistle blows or you hear the buzzer. And you might be on top and you might not be, but – you fought to the end, like that's never given up during the game. Is is that's how it, you know? I think that starts it, and just 
I don't know. I'm the youngest of three boys. I've always been. You know You're getting I mean? your like, ass kicked by your older brothers, huh? Yeah. I mean, you just got to win. I mean, that's just people depend on you to win. Like people want to put things off and not act like, you know, I'll just do me over here. Like you can't do that. If you decide to take a job in law enforcement, you, you took the oath to defend those people who can't do what you can do. And I take it seriously. Well said. Very well said. That's obvious, man. In spite of having a brother on DEA, you turned out well, man. (laughs) Well, he's probably the better half of the group there, but uh, we like you too, Jared. What does your other brother do? Uh, He is an executive vice president. Uh, He's in the IT or not IT. He's in the the tech world. He works for Google right now. Oh, so he's a trillionaire. (laughs) Yeah, he's, he's... he picked the right. <laughs> My middle brother picked the right. We just chased him now. <laughs> just, he he can pay for the family vacation, but yeah, no doubt. If if people want to find out more from you about you, where can they go to, Jared? Uh, all social media is under Resting Group. Um, you know, YouTube, um, Instagram, Facebook. You know, give us a like, give us a follow, and and we update that all the time. And restinggroup.com? Restinggrouptraining.com. Yes. Restinggrouptraining.com. So you can, if you guys are interested in training, it, like you said, you even train civilians, right? Oh, yeah. We train a lot. I mean, I would say like our firearms courses are 60, 40, 60% civilians. And they're just, they're serious about doing it. And like, you know, you always hear people like, uh, why would you teach civilians how to shoot? Because they're damn Americans. That's why. And I'm, I, I want them carrying guns and I want them to know how to do it. And most of the time, the civilians, like I always tell policemen to, to thank one when you see them in class, because without them, I couldn't afford most police departments and don't pay for training. A lot of this training that I provide police officers pay for it out of their own pocket. Like that want to do it and civilians pay for it. And us as trainers, we couldn't survive and make a career out of this. We'd be doing something else if it wasn't for these people paying for training and paying for these things. So, like, they're the ones that are helping you guys. So, like, that's what I always tell everybody. Well, I'd say, why do civilians get training? Because I want them sons of bitches hitting the target they're shooting at and not everything else they're not supposed to be hitting. So Yeah, there you go. I mean, I, I, want, them, I want them to win. I want them to win. Like, there's. There's a lot of bad people in this world. We don't need the police only to get them. Like we need, we need to jack up our army too. Quite frankly, <laughs> dude, there are many places out there to where the cops aren't going to get there in time. If you can't defend yourself, um, they can't. They cannot get there in time. You're exactly right. Hey, Jared, we will be putting this out the week on the anniversary. It'll be the 14th anniversary of your shooting, so it'll be uh, January 26, uh, 2022. But you have a uh, tradition. Um, uh, basically you, the way you observe it, right? So how do you observe, in a sense, you celebrate life, right? So how do you celebrate um, January 26th? Well, it's a celebration of life. So I get together with my friends that were there, my friends I've made now, uh, the friends who've made me into the man I am today, my brothers, and we all get together and we go down in St. Augustine and we do a little tour of the bars and we take seven shots for seven shots. At each bar or just one bar? One bar gets one shot, and then you just drink in between. It, it turns into a – it's a walking day and an Uber ride home. <laughs> it's, it's a walking tour, yeah. It's a walkabout. Well, man – Yeah. But why do, you, why do you do that? Because I love life, and I'm going to celebrate life. You know, Even the bad times that happened during that year or during that life, that's part of life. It's not all unicorns and rainbows. You know, it's, That's what makes us who we are and builds us. 
Brother, it, it has been a, uh, a true honor to have you on here. Now, you know, what we say at the very beginning of this interview, our listeners understand why we say it's such an honor to have a, a true American hero on here. You know, we've done interviews with, uh, I did an interview with Marcus Luttrell and his brother Morgan, and their motto is never give up. And we all say that, but you're the living example of what happens when you don't give up. You survived, you, you came back to fight another day and look at you now, and now you're going to be famous because you've been on Game of Crimes. I know that's what you were shooting for, right? I'm hoping, got my fingers crossed. We'll see what happens. <laughs> hey, hope is not a strategy. We just determined that, right? This is science, right. baby. This is science. Well, look, and Jared, on behalf of me too, I want to t tell your buddy, JT, thank you very much for arranging this. It was very nice of him. Uh, to do that. And like I said, if anybody's out there got a great story, just get a hold of us at games, game of crimes podcast at gmail.com. But Jared, again, like with Steve, people can't see this, but this is me saluting you, sir. Um, it's great to have you. America, have a great American on here. And again, thank you for what you do for training people. Cause I agree. I think that's the biggest thing. When, when your time comes, when it comes time, you want that confidence of knowing you've been trained to do the right thing. Cause if you have to think about it, thinking about it gets you killed. Acting, on your training and your instinct, that's what gets you the, the ability to survive. Good to still have you with us, brother. All right. Thank you all very much for having me. Everybody hang with us. It's time for the debrief. We told you it'd be a little bit graphic, and you know, folks, that's the reality of it. It's when you're in a life and death struggle, and it and you've been shot seven times, you got to end the fight, you got to end the battle. And Jared had more fight in him than the suspect did, and that's why we're able to talk to him today. Absolutely, and you know what I really admire about about Jared and his story is he didn't let that slow him down in the least. He continued with his career, retires from the Jack Sheriff's office. He's now running a training company where he's sharing his experience with less experienced police officers, which is what you need to do. You know, think about when, back when you were in college and your college, I'm in a criminal justice program, the, the instructors that I had the most respect for were those who had been out on the street and had actually done the job, not those that had gotten the master's degree but never been on the street, and they're trying to teach you about police work. So the people that are learning from Jared are learning from somebody who has truly been there and done that. I mean, immense respect for this man. And not only is he teaching cops, he's teaching civilians. He's teaching people how to properly use weapons, how to handle themselves, how to respond to dangerous situations. So, hey, you know, good on him, man. And I'm telling you, if you thought that story was good, we got some other good ones coming up. But, you know, when you've been shot seven times, but you still have not just the will to survive, but the will to win. What an incredible mindset, you know, and that's, that's, I'm telling you, Murph and I talk about this all the time, but that's what it boils down to, whether it was your partner getting shot, you know, whatever case you work, it's that mindset. You have to have the will to win. And when you're in those situations, you have to have the absolute will to survive. And man, this was a story of both. So we were honored to have uh, Jared on. Absolutely. Um, just like Mike Neal, he got the presidential uh, medal, uh, although he did not nut check Joe Biden like Mike Neal did. So, <laughs> <laughs> Now, that's a memorable event. <laughs> and we got the video to prove it. If you just go to GameOfCrimesPodcast.com and look up Mike Neal's, I think it was episode eight, you will see a YouTube video of him nut checking the vice president at that time of the United States of America. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> Good job. Good job. <laughs> well, hey, guys, we hope you enjoyed this. Uh, again, if you do, go over to Apple and go to Spotify. Spotify now, hit those five stars, give us 
a rating. Let us know what you think of content like this. And you know, the other thing too, send us some feedback, gameofcrimespodcast at gmail.com. Do you like the length of these episodes? Are they too long? Do you want them to be shorter? You know, are we hitting the right stuff for you? So give us some feedback because we want to retool some of this as we head into this new year. Also head on over to gameofcrimespodcast.com, our website. Anytime we have books like we did with Jay Dobbins, which by the way was an awesome episode, we put his books on there. We've got some other people coming up that have books, so we'll be constantly updating it. Follow us on the thing called social media at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram, paypal.com. Use our email, Game of Crimes Podcast at gmail.com or paypal.me slash Game of Crimes. Whatever makes it easier for you to support the show and help us bring you more exciting content. But again, as we say, Murph, you got to go to patreon.com slash game of crimes. We have got great stuff coming out. Uh, it looks like the uh, movie review we're doing this month is going to be American History X. It's it's uh, it's in the lead by a narrow margin, but uh, it's over Scarface. I know that disappoints you because every, every badass dope dealer you guys took down in Miami during that time, everybody had a Scarface poster in their house, didn't they? Say hello to my little friend. <laughs> Say hello to my little friend. That's right. uh, oh, I'm sorry. Are you talking about something else, Murph? I wasn't sure about that. <laughs> oh lord oh, just I know. give me patience good lord give me patience all right hey guys well hey as again you know but head on over to patreon.com slash game of crimes we've got a lot of good stuff there like i say uh, you know upwards over 60 pieces of content now we're putting out six to seven pieces of original content each month and good stuff and fun stuff so we want you to join us there and again we want to say thank you to everybody out there all you players out there who are listening to this podcast and helping make this the biggest baddest most dangerous game of all the game of crimes <laughs>